Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankman. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to this week's episode of Shankman on Money. I hope everyone is having a wonderful summer. Even though we're in the middle of the summer already, my talking points this week are all are all those for all those recent college graduates who are entering the workforce. Since I'll likely never be asked to give a commencement address, I consider these thoughts to be the message I would give if I was ever offered the opportunity. Hopefully they will offer perspective and practical advice to all those who are listening. As always, I'll spend the last half of the episode answering listener questions. With that, let's jump into this week's talking points. Okay, so graduating from an institution of higher education is a great accomplishment. Typical commencement speakers try to find a way to inspire graduates. They encourage students to pursue their passion, make a difference in the world, and other less than helpful suggestions. While noble, these pursuits won't make it easier to pay yeshiva tuition, a mortgage, or afford a Jewish lifestyle. This advice is also typically given by people who are all already successful and rich and who at some point along their journey lost touch with the actual hurdles facing today's new workforce entrance. What graduates really need to hear as they embark on their life and career is practical advice. Since I'm a money guy and not a life coach, I'll focus on the career aspect. One of the biggest factors for successful career growth is understanding how to build your human capital. What is human capital, you may ask, and why should you care? Good question. Human capital consists of the knowledge and skills and that people invest in and accumulate throughout their lives, enabling them to realize their potential and position them for financial success. The information I'm about to share won't tug at your heartstrings or inspire you to change the world. It is, however, invaluable for setting yourself apart from most of the other 2 million individuals who also received their bachelor's degree this year. If you embark on your career with this knowledge, it will undoubtedly make certain aspects of your life much easier. Here are seven thoughts that will increase your human capital and help you with the next phase of life. The first is to find a career that is practical. As I mentioned, pursuing your passion is generally not practical advice. I'm passionate about eating kakosh cake and going on road trips. Unfortunately, neither of these things will help me pay my bills. Your passions are best pursued as hobbies, not as a means of supporting your family. The proper way to choose a career is to first understand the lifestyle you want to live. If you want to live in LA or Long Island, have six children, go away for all the Chagim, and have a second home in Israel, then a career as a part-time dog walker may not be practical. I'm not suggesting that every person needs an extravagant lifestyle or that most people should consider a career as an investment banker. I am just pointing out that your career of choice should be able to support the lifestyle you want. It's amazing to me how many people don't understand that your career directly impacts your lifestyle. The second is find a career that plays to your natural abilities. Every person brings certain natural abilities to the table. Some of you are analytical, others are great with people, some are great writers, coders, orators, and more. There are many skills that are valued in the workforce. The key is finding a career that places an emphasis on the skills that you have to offer. 
You may be interested in becoming a physician, but if you're bad at school and become woozy around blood, you're starting with a huge handicap relative to the many others who pursue careers in the medicine every year. During my senior year of college, I was unable to secure an interview for the many jobs to which I was applying. One night I had an epiphany that in retrospect seems so obvious. I needed to change course and only apply to jobs that cater to my natural strengths. Shifting my approach led to a flood of interviews and subsequently many attractive opportunities. Many people apply for jobs that are aspirational or pursue careers for parental approval. This is silly. Instead, make a list of things that you're good at and identify the corresponding jobs that value those traits, and you will increase your probability of success. Three, find a career that you don't hate. Here is something that you should not be that should not be as controversial as it sounds. You don't need to love your job. You just need to not hate it. This doesn't seem glamorous, but being realistic, realistic about what you can stomach doing every day for four decades that will also earn you a sufficient wage is a sensible strategy. At the very start of one's career, there may need to be some trial and error, and that's fine. However, the sooner you can select an industry that is bearable to you, the sooner you can start working towards becoming proficient in that area and ultimately enhancing your earning potential. The fourth is obtain the proper advanced education, credentials, and certifications. The first three tips are important initial steps so you can find a career to invest in to build your human capital. Once you do that, the next step is to acquire the proper foundational knowledge to be good at your job. This can come in many forms, including on-the-job training, additional schooling, or other types of certifications. This may be a tough pill to swallow, but most people finishing a four-year degree in college without don't have any real world, world skills. It may be unpopular to tell new graduates that academia is not the real world unless you're pursuing a career in academia and you need to develop skills that someone will pay you for. An employer may hire someone based on their future potential and natural abilities. However, if you can demonstrate your willingness to invest in yourself and your career, you may have more opportunities compared to others who are less motivated. It's also worth pointing out that getting additional designations just to have more letters after your name is ill-advised. It's important to understand what advanced designations and education are valued in your line of work and only pursue what is necessary. Going to school just for the sake of going to school is not a good use of time, effort, and money. The fifth is to stick with it. Avoid jumping around frequently to other opportunities. After the first few years of your career, when you're still deciding on the path to take, you need to settle on an industry and plan to stick with it for the long term. Constantly moving around is a big red flag professionally and may ruin your career momentum. The decision to stick with the field will make you an invaluable resource to colleagues, clients, and allow you to develop a reputation of being skilled in your profession. Sticking with something is easier said than done. After all, the grass is always greener in another job. The reality is every career has its pros and cons that are not always apparent to the outside observer. You will have speed bumps along the way to your success, but they are usually temporary. The ability to persevere through them will usually position you for more opportunities, responsibilities, and higher earnings in the future. Six, play the long game. Never make short-term business decisions at the expense of long-term success. This advice may come in many forms, whether it's trying to reach a near-term goal, sales quota, or anything else. Success is developed by playing the long game, developing long-lasting relationships, establishing trust, and creating a stellar reputation. 
This takes decades to build, but will pay enormous dividends in any line of work. Honestly, trustworthiness and doing what's best for your client should be valued above all else and allow you to have a career that you're proud of. The short-term accolades are just distractions and should be treated as such. And finally, set number seven is hang up your own shingle. At some point in your professional life, you may come to the realization that you can't reach your full potential as part of a larger organization. After years of working for the man, <coughs> accumulating your human capital of skills, experience, relationships, if you have the entrepreneurial drive, then hang up your own shingle. Starting your own business is not for everybody. In fact, I would say that it's not for most people. However, for those who have what it takes and the desire, it's the best way to reach your maximum earnings and professional potential. As a business owner, you set the vision of your firm, select your clients, and build something that you may be able to sell for a multiple of your company revenue at a future date. From a lifestyle perspective, after the initial challenges of getting up and running, owning a business will allow you to have more control over your schedule and life. You don't report to any superior. You are the boss, so you make the rules for how you want to run your business and live your life. At some point down the road, many of you will come to the realization that this freedom is the ultimate goal that everybody wants to achieve. Starting your own business and starting your own enterprise is one way to do that. It's important for recent graduates to understand that this is just the beginning of your journey. The race is long, and in the end, it is only against yourself. Spending the time and money today to invest in your decisions, education, training values, and building your human capital will set the trajectory for the rest of your life, and you should plan accordingly. Okay, those are my talking points for this week. As a reminder, you can be notified of my recent articles, webinars, and all the other work I put out by subscribing to my free monthly newsletter at shankmanwealth.com forward slash newsletter. Now for this week's quote, sticking with the theme of practical life lessons for recent graduates, this week's quote is from Mark Twain, who said, the secret of getting ahead is getting started. The secret to getting started is breaking your complex, overwhelming tasks into small, manageable tasks and then starting on the first one. <laughs> I'm a big fan of practical advice, and this quote falls into that category. Whatever you want to accomplish, whether it's becoming a physician, becoming a multimillionaire, writing a book, becoming a world-renowned speaker, or anything else, the first step is to, is set to success is to simply get started. And while the goal may seem unattainable, what you will notice with any worthwhile endeavor is that it can be broken down into small, manageable steps, and then it becomes much more feasible. I remember years ago, I did a 100-mile bike ride. At mile 72, there was a nine-mile climb. That is nine miles straight of uphill biking when you are already exhausted, and the task seemed unattainable, and I felt like I was going to pass out. I was physically fit enough to complete the ride, but psychologically it was challenging. What I realized is if I just kept my eyes focused a few feet in front of me and not look all the way up the hill, the ride was much more manageable and achievable. Obviously, I completed that ride. And the next year when I did the race, getting through those nine miles with that mindset ahead of me made it a lot easier. And similarly, uh, break the task down to small tabs and just focus um, the step right ahead of you and you'll be able to do it. With investing, this is especially important. The first step is becoming a multimillionaire is to start saving a little each paycheck. Then it's to invest that money prudently. If you do that year in and year out for years, you will achieve your goal. Now let's jump into this week's financial Shilas questions. If you do have a question, feel free to submit it to me at Jonathan at shankmanwealth.com and it may be answered in a future episode. Okay, first question. 
Is it ever financially prudent to get premium gas? Well, this is a common misconception people have. I'm not actually a petroleum engineer. I'm a financial advisor. So I can't speak to the merits of petroleum for premium gas versus regular. Regular gas has worked well for me so far, and the world didn't implode yet because of the fumes my car generates. As of right now, it seems like regular gas is getting the job done and lets me keep a few extra shekels in my pocket that I can reallocate to more important things like my Shabbos Kakosh fund. What is the optimal amount of times a year to do a portfolio rebalance? There's no such thing as an optimal when it comes to rebalancing. I would argue that rebalancing too often, like four times a year, is imprudent since it may cause unwanted taxable events and won't give your winning holdings the ability to run. On the other hand, rebalancing too frequently, like once every few years, will cause your portfolio not to mirror your risk profile and can be devastating if the market crashes. At the, at the end of the day, you need to do what is needed to maintain your risk profile, achieve your goals while minimizing unwanted taxable events. Next question. What's the optimal amount of times a year to do a portfolio review with your advisor? And there's no such thing as an optimal when it comes to frequency of portfolio reviews. You should do it when it is necessary, and that is different for every person. Many advisors like to get together with their clients regularly so they can remind the client to give them more money to manage. That is the ultimate purpose of the portfolio review for many advisors. The reality is there's not much to actually review on a regular basis unless there's a life-changing event such as a birth, death, divorce, inheritance, selling a business, etc. All these life-changing events may impact your investment strategy, and that is a reason to do a review or have a discussion. Remember, your portfolio should be set up for a long term and should not be adjusted regularly other than occasional rebalance. Most of the time, the biggest challenge for investors is to avoid potchkeying around with their holdings and to stay out of their own way. Instead of regular portfolio review, you should feel comfortable reaching out to your advisor whenever you have a financial question that could be answered with a quick phone call. This type of resource at your fingertips comes in handy as you make financial decisions throughout the year. How can a stay-at-home spouse create their own retirement account and allow to grow tax-free like a 401k? Obviously, it's funded from the working spouse's income, but is there a way to do it? Yes, there is. First, congrats on your success on being a one-income household. That is not exactly common these days with how expensive life has become. In terms of your question, you can you can open up a spousal IRA and have the stay-at-home spouse deposit money based on your income. The funds will grow tax-free. You're limited in terms of how much money can be deposited every year to $6,500, which does increase over time with inflation. But added on on a regular basis for 30 years and invested the right way, it will add up to a meaningful amount of money, even at $6,500. Another option is if you have a consulting business with income of some kind, and you could put your spouse on payroll and have them do uh, some type of tasks that are not overly time consuming. She can be eligible for a retirement account and contribute against the income she makes to a SEP, simple, or some other type of account of that nature. This may be more involved to set up, but if you have income outside your employer, it may be worth considering. Next questions. I won a lawsuit. Can I contribute my settlement towards a retirement account? No, it's not earned income. Only earned income from employment can be used to contribute to a retirement account. Similarly, dividend income is also not earned income and can't be contributed to a retirement account either. If you do want to simulate the tax-free growth, annuities, um, Maybe an option, but those can be expensive and cumbersome. So do your due diligence before purchasing one. How are UTMA accounts taxed? 
Money placed in an UGMA or UPMA account is owned by the child, so earnings are generally taxed at the child's tax rate, which is usually lower than the parents. The way it works is up to $1,050 in earnings tax-free. The next $1,050 is taxable at the child's tax rate. Any earnings over $2,100 are taxed at the parent's tax rate. Like with many tax-related questions, don't let the tax tell. Wave the investment dog. Up my accounts are a nice way to set aside funds for your kids to start their life with. While setting aside for your kids should rank lower on your list of financial parties compared to retirement planning, as an example, it's still a worthwhile goal and one that should be considered regardless of tax implications, assuming you have the means to do so. With ever skyrocketing housing prices, one way to use these funds is to help your kids with an eventual down payment for a home. Next question. I was an independent contractor and had a solid 401k. I moved to a W-2 job. My question is, what do I do with my solo 401k? Should I move it to my new employer's 401k? Your solo 401k is tied to your business. Even if you're not making much money from your business anymore, your 401k is still connected to your old business, so you don't need to shut it down. You are probably you also probably don't want to move to your W-2 employer's 401k since you have a limited number of investment options, which are likely mediocre at best. I imagine that you have far superior options, um, investment options within your solo 401k plan since you pick them and may have also have lower cost options as well. Another option is to roll over these funds to an IRA, but this may, may, may not make sense if you plan to make backdoor Roth IRA contributions since you will run afoul of the pro rata rules. If you don't intend on making Roth IRA contributions, then this is not a factor. In short, keep your business open so your solo 401k can stay where it is until you evaluate your best option. Next question, my husband and I both want to contribute to an IRA this year in the limit of $6,500 per person. What's the best way to contribute to our IRA account? Should I just write a check of $13,000 and put it into my account or $13,000? into his account, or does the money need to be split between us? An IRA stands for Individual Retirement Account or Arrangement. The key word is individual. There is no such thing as a joint retirement account, so you need to each contribute to your own specific individual IRA. Next question. I'm hoping you'll be able to advise me on what to do. We have three kids that attend modern Orthodox yeshivas. While they aren't the most expensive ones in the tri-state area, the tuition with the financial aids and still equals more than we could afford to pay. We use credit cards to cover the tuition. And since we can't afford the credit cards um, to pay the credit cards back in full, we've accrued quite a bit of debt. This is a never ending cycle until the kids are all finished with school. I feel stressed on a daily basis with no idea of how to get out of this mess. Going to a credit bureau would ruin our credit and it won't help in the long run as we can't stop using credit cards while there's still tuition to pay. We don't live an extravagant lifestyle. The debt is also is almost exclusively from tuition. Any guidelines, any guidance would be appreciated. First, I'm sorry for your situation. I spend a lot of time defending yeshivas and advocating for parents to cut out every other financial outlay, even retirement savings in order to pay for their kids uh, full financial tuition. After all, it's not fair for someone who has the cash flow to pay the bills to yeshiva. Um, to depend on the generosity of others who are also making sacrifices to send their kids to yeshiva. However, based on your situation, it sounds like the yeshiva needs to do more. Let them know your situation and show them supporting documentation illustrating that you don't spend frivolously 
or save anything for yourself. Also, show them that you are accumulating more and more credit card debt in order to pay your Shiva tuition bills. No family should be expected to accumulate credit card debt to send their kids to yeshiva. It's the yeshiva's responsibility to do more. If they aren't willing to work with you, then shame on them. You should 100% pull your kids out of this institution that is so clearly misguided and void of values and find another school in the area that is willing to work with you. After the yeshiva tuition portion is figured out, you should speak to your credit card companies to work out a payment plan. And I wish you Hatzlacha with that. Next question. My target date fund does a lot worse than SPY. Should I just move to an index fund or my 403B? SPY or the S&P 500 index ETF represents the largest 500 companies in the U.S. This asset class has been one of the best performing over the past 15 years. It's also concentrated in one area of the global market. A target date fund has exposure to all areas of, mar of the market, including stocks, bonds, and cash. Of course, it will underperform the fund that is concentrated exclusively in one of the best asset classes from the past 15 years. The comparison you are making is not sensible since they are two very different strategies. Also, the only true benchmark you should really care about is whether or not you're on track to achieve your financial goals. Remember, it is far more prudent to invest in a portfolio that is diversified. Don't get caught up on past performance exclusively, which is what you're doing, or it will lead to bad decisions. Remember, the S&P the 500 can have many years of bad performance. Chasing after an index fund of any sort is not the silver bullet to success. In fact, it is an oversimplification of the investing process and is probably not the right approach. Additionally, there are many different index funds that track a variety of different benchmarks. You could design a portfolio that only holds a variety of index funds. But holding just one index is imprudent. I'm toying with the idea of working with a financial advisor. What is your personal sales pitch? So I'm not at the point in my career where I sell people on doing business with me. The people that reach out to me are already interested in working together. They generally know my philosophy from reading my posts and articles or listening to my podcasts and webinars or are referred by someone who does. If you want a sales pitch, there's a long list of advisors that will be happy to oblige with their carefully crafted and rehearsed elevator pitch full of buzzwords that include the terms holistic, access, resources, added value, risk management, manager selection, outperformance, etc. All those phrases are nonsense, so you should be hesitant to work with anyone who uses those phrases or ask more follow-up questions. Most sales pitches don't actually differentiate these advisors at all and should do the legwork to find someone who will understand your situation and can offer the proper solution for your specific needs. And I wish you the best of luck with that. Okay, that's it for financial questions this week. Feel free to email me with any questions you have, and I might answer them in a future episode. And with that, this is a wrap for today's show. Any comments or questions, feel free to reach out directly to me via email. I love hearing from my listeners. And finally, the secret to financial success is no secret at all. It's a spend less than you make, invest the difference prudently, and ignore all the noise. See you next time on Shankman on Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, please email me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all of my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. 
Finally, if you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.